0: I'm Nil Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. Danigan from Strong Roots, thank you so much for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Delighted to be here.
0: Now, I'm sure you've been asked this question a bunch of times, um, and, you know, I would love to just skip past it, but I don't think I can because I got to be fair to my audience who may not have heard the Strong Roots story or don't know enough about your background. I'd love to go back to when the idea of a Strong Roots came about and, and what inspired you to even uh, get started with this company
1: sure sure we, we never presume that everybody knows us otherwise <laughs> we, we wouldn't have a lot of work to do so um, strong roots was born out of a uh, the first part of my career which was in the food business um, and I say career but I grew up in the food industry um, my family was in food um, it's a third or fourth generational business now. So I grew up in delivery trucks and packing fresh produce like fruits, vegetables, and potatoes, and spending uh, weekends with my dad in a warehouse where um, there was lots of different characters and farmers and producers and stuff all kind of collaborating, which was a, a potato merchant business at that stage, which grew into a pretty big, um, uh, consolidator of fresh food is, I think, what, what what you would call it. If you if if your listeners are, you know, mostly US based, it's probably UNFI is probably the most similar to the kind of business that I grew up in. And um, I was there for ten years. Obviously, had experience of it before, but my career in in uh, what what's named after my grandfather, Sam Denigan and Company, I uh, was there for ten years as a employee. And while I was there, I worked in every part of the business from, um, you know, management and operations. I was the IT guy for a while. I worked in sales and marketing. I was in procurement, going to various different places around the world to buy produce in, out of season, um, to import back to Ireland. Um, all of this Uh, It was, was Irish based, which is where I'm originally from. And when you're on an island like Ireland, you know, a lot of things can be seasonal and sustainable, but a lot of things can't. So spend a lot of time with growers in different countries, understanding how they do things differently and how they do things better and trying to build a supply chain that could sustain a small country with small volumes, which were very changeable. Um, so while I was working there, I worked with various different private brands for retailers. Um, and primarily I found my sweet spot of, of skill in developing new products for those retailers, um, from an idea or concept or a trend that we were seeing in the food service market with chefs, particularly celebrity chefs, you know, every time, uh, there would be a cooking show on TV or, uh some sort of a program that used a unique vegetable. The next day, the whole country wanted, you know, this exotic fruit or vegetable to put in their recipe. So, you know, our job was to find it, commercialize it, and make it available for the masses. And, you know, so I've been doing this for a long time without the formalization of it around a brand. Um, I think the the kind of the exciting... Uh, light bulb moment for me was when i was i had licensed the green giant brand Mm -hmm. if you remember the sweet corn and the peas and it exists in multiple categories like frozen and canned goods and stuff and my family's business had licensed that for the irish market and i was in charge of commercializing it and figuring out what we could sell what was unique you know how would we break the monopoly of Uh, in Ireland fresh produce is primarily private label and we felt that a brand could bring this added value, this story, this understanding of why paying more for fresh produce got you better ingredients etc and also linking it back to the farms where it came from and who produced it and how they produced it and why why was that better and ultimately what I learned from that was a huge amount of both how to do things, but also how not to do things. And that project failed because, um, you know, growers and, and producers, specifically in Ireland, but I've I found this across the world, you know, are very, very, you know, uh, attached to the, the, the demands that the retailers place on them, whether that's price or availability or exclusivity or whatever. So, you know, the growers that i had been working with, once we had created these beautiful varieties of uh, vegetables that were both grown in Ireland and away, you know, couldn't refuse the retailers when they came and just look for them in private label versus brand. And then I think the other reason why that failed was because um, we hadn't really understood the price sensitivity in the market for fresh produce. Um and hadn't done enough research on ultimately what the consumer wanted versus what we wanted to give them. And those were two valuable lessons in what came next, which was strong roots. So having had a huge experience in every part of the food industry, from the agronomy of growing things and seasonality all the way through to how to commercialize things on shelf, um, while we were doing that project for Green Giant, I had done this huge amount of research against brands in general that operated with fruits and vegetables in in the retail space. And because there was so few in Ireland, we had to use the frozen category to see how consumers bought private label versus branded products in the same store for different pricing sensitivities and different ranges and for different purposes of premiumization, etc. And... What I realized was that in fresh, because of that celebrity chef culture and empowerment of people cooking at home and scratch cooking, etc., especially after two thousand eight during the recession, when people were really focused on making their own stuff, I realized that frozen was one of these categories that hadn't been innovated for for decades. Um, packaging changes you know, down weights, up weights, depending on the, on the timing, but no real difference. You know, it was peas, it was carrots, it was florets of broccoli, it was mixed vegetables, it was ice cream, it was pizza, etc. cetera. And um, when I started looking at this frozen category, it just, it hadn't made, it, it hadn't made any progress, but it also didn't differ that much from fresh, mm. which is what I had grown up in. So the more I looked at it, the more I realized that you know this is ripe for disruption, even with the simplest of products. And while I had been buying a lot of raw material for who's now one of my partners in McCain Foods for a project that we were doing with them in the UK, I realized that um, while the food service sector had found a way to commercialize, Sweet potato fries, which was our first product and our only SKU for nearly two years, um, no one had done it successfully in retail. And when I dug in to try and understand why that was the case, I realized it was a massive opportunity at volume for a consumer that really wanted it. So it was, it was a kind of a rather than a light bulb moment, it was a, a period of 10 years in an industry understanding everything at at its core, which actually led me to what people call a gap in the market. Well, it's only a gap (laughs) in the market if you see it and you can do something about it. And um, that's when Strong Roots was born. Um, Knowledge and, you know, uh, understanding of the industry at a level where you could do something about it. And shortly after you know, launching that as, you know, I'm always very honest about this, you know, it was a timed opportunity to sell one product. I was never, you know, part of the vegan plant-based movement. I was never an advocate for veganism. I was an agriculture guy who knew about business and consolidation. But in that journey, very quickly, we realized that there was this revolution going on that was kind of, under the surface at the time, but it was definitely something that we could partake in. And that really drove what came next for us. So I think there was a huge amount of timing, look, and, um, you know, execution knowledge that got us going. It was what we did with it after that, that kind of got us to the point where we are now, and, and understanding that this was bigger than an Irish thing. And, you know, taking action on how we could Become a global brand in a relatively short space of time by having seen that earlier than a lot of uh, big companies.
0: Mm-hmm. So there's so much there that I I could pick up on. One of the things that did stand out, though, is you you said that you had only one SKU for the first two years, mm-hmm. and that was the sweet potato fries in yep. retail. And I and I also read this in in prep for this for this conversation today. That your company was the first to introduce a frozen sweet potato fry product in retail in Ireland is that correct? Because that surprised me when I read that. <laughs> Given it That's was only true. a few That's years true. ago, and I would have assumed that that this was normal and
1: ubiquitous. I can tell you that I can tell you that ten years ago, sweet potatoes first were sold as a raw ingredient in the fresh produce market in Ireland. And over a three to five year year period, they went from being 0% of the total potato sales in Ireland to about 13%. And so we didn't see the trend, you know, when it was too late, we could see it emerging because we were procuring the raw ingredients for the various different industrial and retail channels. So yeah, Ireland Ireland went from being a uh, nearly non-existent consumer of sweet potato to being, um, you know, one of the most per capita in Europe in like a five-year period. Um, so yeah, I mean, we the reason that we we were a a, a one-skew horse for so long was because people we couldn't supply enough sweet potato fries. You know, we were trying to, we were trying to grow so fast and, um, you know, it still makes up, uh, the biggest part of, um, of our sales across the business. It's our, it's our number one seller.
0: And so interesting that your first idea and your first product, obviously you hit it out of the park with the first product, uh, by identifying the gap, um, it, Kind of was, uh, sounds like almost like an organic evolution of all that you'd been seeing and hearing and understanding about the fresh produce spaces and, and then eventually about frozen. Were you also sourcing the sweet potatoes from Ireland? How was, what was the supply chain looking like? And and before we get into how did you expand beyond that, I'd, I'd love to dive really into the, the early days of um yeah, trying sure. to create a brand around it, because that is a big part of your story too, like you were not doing that yeah. prior to Strong Roots.
1: No, it, it, it wasn't a private label product that made us famous. It was the brand, it was the packaging, it was how it looked, it was how it made people fa- feel. It was its association to how premium it was, matched off at the price point that we had to achieve for it. Um, and it was also a major shift in people's perception of, how much they were willing to pay for a product in the frozen aisle versus where they had been before. You know, most retailers laughed us out of the room when we went to the product with them first, even though we had the data and the insights and the experience, et cetera. You know, um, I think retailers are much more kind of uh, open-eared now than they used to be. But, um, you know, back then it was very much a We know best and, you know, usually you don't get the chance if they don't think it's going to work. But thankfully, through good relationships, there was a trust there and they made the right bets in the end. (laughs) Um, No, we chose the most complicated supply chain from the very start, and that was the USP, actually. So believe it or not, up until about um, 10 years ago, sweet potatoes weren't grown in Central Europe um small like private holdings possibly people's gardens and stuff like that but not on a uh, commercial basis for for supply of the market um north carolina is the home of sweet potatoes um in the northern hemisphere um with accepting uh, china and we had been um, exporting quite a lot of raw material for the retail market of whole fresh produce from North Carolina for a couple of years before I started Strong Roots, Um, which meant that we understood how to do it fresh, which is usually more complicated than frozen. Um, But I couldn't understand how um, the people who were doing sweet potato fries to say the food service market to service like TGI Fridays and some of the American chains that had started them um, in the Irish market, why they weren't doing it, you know, in, in bigger capacity. So when I drilled into it, it was to do with the quality of the product after shipping. If it was shipped fresh, there's lots of dehydration that happens. Um, Basically, if you ship a a, a thousand kilos, you would get uh, 850 kilos, which caused havoc with how much you had to pay for the product and had to have a very understanding relationship with your grower supplier partner versus the receiver. Um, And, you know, having done a lot of shipping and troubleshooting for different products that are affected by those type of conditions during shipping, you know, I I just realized that the easiest way to do this would be to freeze it um, because you were getting what you were shipping uh, on the other end. Um, Normally, big companies don't do that because the freight and the costs um, and everything associated with shipping finished products doesn't work in a bigger P&L with more overheads and costs, etc. But as a startup company with an employee and staff of one, that's not the same. So um, we 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 got really close with a grower in North Carolina who we actually still work with and still ship products around the world called uh, Trinity Frozen Foods. And at that time, it was owned and run by a guy called George Wooten, who is one of the biggest sweet potato growers in uh, in the U.S. And he, believe it or not, he was trying to find a outlet for his waste material sweet potatoes that were either too big or too small to go to the retail market because everyone wants the perfect looking non-ugly fruit or vegetable. Mm-hmm. So he was trying to create an ad- added value from his waste. And we saw a massive opportunity to turn his waste into a premium re- retail product. So since the beginning, we've been shipping containers from North Carolina over to Ireland and, and to the UK and some other countries um, from day one um, because that was actually the unique selling proposition of both quality and taste and um, uh, you know heritage that we wanted to sell and that we wanted to sell uh to to tell the story about um our supply chain is a little bit different now because we're so focused on our on our footprint but um yeah we we started very complicated and now we're trying to oversimplify it actually
0: yeah oh, that's that's such a, I would have never guessed that was what was happening but it also again explains that it almost sounds like maybe I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, drawing conclusions here, but it seems like while you were working with your family business, you were almost always looking out for the next opportunity or looking at where uh, there was a chance to launch a brand. And it sounds like a lot of these, these um, potential partnerships that eventually emerged came out of those discussions and relationships and identifying new possibilities on where to take your new brand. Um but of course, you know, of course, you've, you experienced fairly quick success in Ireland and it expanded to the UK, given that you are, and, and I'm not very familiar with the frozen category in the European market in general, but i um, so I'm sure you can tell me a lot more, but I'd love to understand, given the type of SKUs that you had when you were launching, say, or expanding into the UK, uh, where were you positioning yourself versus what existed in the market? Uh, And, of course, then we'll get to what happened when you try to do that now in the U.S. as well, because the U.S. definitely has a very robust uh, competitive marketplace when it comes to products like this. Um, But tell us about the first step outside of Ireland with some new SKUs. Um, What was your thinking? What was the research you did?
1: Yeah, so... um... Unfortunately for us, uh sweet potato fries and retail was already a commodity in the UK by the time we were ready to go there in in year two. Um and the reason for that is, you know, one of the um biggest French fry companies in the world, the biggest French fry company in the world in in McCain, um, had already figured out what I had figured out over the same timeline. Hadn't got to Ireland, thankfully, but um, ultimately had launched um, into the UK markets. And then a couple of Dutch and Belgian suppliers had also figured out um, how to do it efficiently for the private label market. So when you're a challenger brand speaking to big retailers about commodities, usually the quality quality over quantity conversation isn't the one you can have that early. Um, so the fact that our product was better and was cleaner and was, um, you know, procured from an area that literally grew the breast produce, you know, their consumers focused so much on price for commodities that that wasn't a unique selling proposition for them. Mm-hmm. And we realised that if we were going to break into the UK market, we were actually going to have to design a completely new, not just single skew, but the range of products. That made sense for the same trend that we had hit on in Ireland, but for a completely different consumer in a completely different market, which is much more competitive. You know, what you've got in the UK, which you don't have in Ireland or didn't at the time, is that you have, you know, two two sets of suppliers for frozen retail. One is the big CPG companies, so um, big French fry companies, big vegetable companies like Nomad and Birdseye. And then you've got a second tier in the UK, which is challenger frozen brands, who are all trying to find the same insights and gaps that you're trying to find, but they're funded and sophisticated and they're not as start up as you. So we had to find another in, you know, and you're right in what you say about, you know, the background and history was to, to find those trends and find those innovations. So for me, this was a creative challenge. This is what got me out of bed in the morning. You know, This was the exciting part about why I had got into business myself. So um, that's what we did. We, we, we went to Waitrose. and We presented, we, we set up to present about 35 different products to Waitrose. And I remember the buyer came into the room and he was like, I'm not looking at any of that over there. I want to t- try that one and that one. And that was it. He just picked. A random two out of the whole group. Um, and those two were um, our kale and quinoa burger, um, which subsequently won a, an XT award um, at, at Expo West in, mm-hmm. in 2019. And um, our mixed root vegetable fries, which was something that um, the market hadn't seen, they hadn't seen. And waitress are known as innovation acceptors as opposed to innovation followers. Um, they take risks, they can see things a little bit further, they've got a different demographic of consumer who's willing to pay more, etc. So we chose them to start there because of that as well as, um, I suppose, you know putting one foot in the market without jumping in too deep mm-hmm. and not being able to service you know a big customer like Tesco or Sainsbury's Asda, for example. Um, so our second range of products, I mean, we developed the can and Quinoa Burger on the basis that in the market, there was no great tasting veggie burgers whatsoever. There was uh, extruded and processed patties. There were breaded vegetables in a ball. There was various different things, but they all tasted like crap. They were, they were terrible. They were either too bland or covered in you know, unhealthy breadcrumbs or whatever. So we set ourselves the task of trying to make a healthy, tasty veggie burger. And amazingly, that's all we did. And that's what bought us kudos to enter the UK market. We we launched it with three other products, which were spinach bites, which are another mm-hmm. household favorite in the UK and the US now. Um, our mixed with vegetable fries, which was carrots, beets and parsnips cut into french fries and um using our 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 tempura batter which makes them really crispy and um our our coated beetroot wedges which i think was one of our best products ever but because not enough people love beets in the world didn't uh survive too long (laughs) with the the high volume velocities that are needed in the market but that kind of launched us into the UK market completely different to what happened in Ireland, but following the train, same trend and insights, let's bring color and innovation to a beige and tired category. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, three of those products that exist today, um, which is a, is a pretty good hit rate. And um, that brought us to every major retailer in the, in the first year in the UK um, bar, one or two who, who we're now trading with. Um, and subsequently, our relationship as a result of those products brought sweet potato fries into the market as well. And only recently, um, I was to learn that uh, despite all the commoditization of sweet potato fries over the, the years that we established, um, we're now um, just above the next uh, branded player as the number one sweet potato fry in the uk market so you know similarly to the us what you launch with doesn't need to be your, you know your key skews uh, in the long term
0: it's fascinating because while all of this is happening and you're starting to expand in the uk and and of course we're going to get into the us next um at the same time in Not exactly the same space, but if you want to call the plant-based industry a space or a category, it's not really a category, it involves multiple uh, sections of the grocery store and and retail. Uh, We were witnessing this this rapid rise of um, the new wave of meat alternatives and cheese and dairy alternatives and this really fast-growing industry called the plant-based food industry. Except Mm -hmm. in that industry, at least from the looks of it in the last few years, all the attention was on burgers and chicken nuggets and uh, one-to-one meat replacements. Um, And increasingly, it seems like some of your SKUs, while some of your SKUs could be considered sides um, or snacks, um, you started to dabble in the burger space, but more from a veggie burger standpoint, which at least in the u.s has been around for a while good or bad i know everyone has different opinions on veggie burgers and also there is a large spectrum of them from the uh the dry bean burger that that falls apart to the mushy paste of a veggie burger that uh no one really wants to eat right and and so veggie burgers were sort of like um especially all the new plant-based meat companies are positioning themselves saying, we are not veggie burgers, right? We are we're meat just made from plants. And while that's happening, you're building this separate company on the, maybe that's not the best way to categorize it, but on the backs of real vegetables, right? There's there's no denying that your products are vegetables and you're not even hiding the fact. In fact, um, that is the yeah. whole point of your products. So I guess I'm seeing all this to really... Um, pick your brain on what were you thinking at that point in time while you see, uh, these massive startups, um, with skyrocketing valuations, uh, around the same time while you're building this, uh, veggie forward plant-based food company, um, did the thought ever cross your mind? Maybe that's an area you should start dabbling in. Maybe what consumers want is really meaty burgers and not really vegetables, um, I kind of know where you went with that decision. Eventually, we all know that now, mm-hmm. but um, I'm sure that must've been tempting given the amount of money flying around in the year 2017, 18, and some would argue until last year. Um, yeah. yeah. What was your thinking behind that? And and maybe it was a simple decision because you knew your lane and you knew what you were good at. But I'm curious from yeah. an entrepreneur standpoint, uh, how do you not ignore what's happening around in the space? And it seems attractive you know. and exciting. <laughs>
1: Of course, I'd be a liar to say that you're not looking on into the industry. You know, we we were always an orphan, you know. No one one would have us in that part of the industry. You know, frozen vegetables didn't want us. Categorization has always been really difficult for us. And uh, no more when, you know, these companies are getting billions in market cap for for what we just couldn't understand. Um, Not from a scientific perspective, we understood the makeup of the products and ultimately the the, the interest in the market. But one of the things that we learned really early on is that simplicity is key. And we were never plant-based. We were always plants. And we took part in the plant-based conversation because that was a industry understood categorization that made us part of something as opposed to nothing because we didn't want to be you know green giant and bird's eye but we also didn't want to be beyond an impossible either you know we were very very specifically as you've rightly said trying to be a delivery method for vegetables Mm -hmm. and the consumer got that and the consumer understood it and the consumer didn't need any education about it. And as a marketer, I always think that when you have to do an education job for the consumer against your industry or your products, you've already got an uphill battle, not because of the potential of naysayers, which will come with success anyway, um, but more to do with the fact that if the consumer doesn't understand it, then there's capacity for them to question what it is, why you're doing it, et cetera. And ultimately, long term, that's, you know, quite difficult. And mm-hmm. you can see that in other industries like the beverage industry against sugar or the meat industry against, um, uh, you know, the carcinogenic properties against pork, for example, or, you know, anything where there's, there's um, education still to be had about the constituent parts of that you know, at some stage you're going to have, have questions that get more and more difficult. And when it comes to vegetables and plants, there's no education needed. People innately feel they're good, they feel they're good for them. There's questions over conventional versus organic, which is a debate that's been going on for years. But ultimately, you know, that forms a, a small part of um, frozen globally versus mm-hmm. frozen in the US. And... and When you've got something that, you know, if you pitch it right and you've got the right format and you hit the right trend in terms of the ingredient profile, of which we always lead with one or two and not more, it's either something that people want, tastes good, and they want to buy again or not. And customer loyalty and consumer loyalty metrics is one of the most valuable things that any brand can look at. And... Some people think it's incredibly uh, complicated to go and find those. But if you go into the same store every day for a month, you will see if the the customer is picking it up or not. Um, If they pick it up again and again, you're going to see consistent sales and you're going to see that you have something, even if it's in the worst position in the store. As long as the shelf is stocked, you're going to get some impulse purchase if you've got the communication of the packaging right and the product right. And then it becomes about whether they buy it again. And my biggest concern for the imitation meat or or alternative protein industry from the very beginning has been, um, it's 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 effort in being so close to meat and animal protein is is going to lead people back to. Um, that the, the product that they, that they have the positive sentiment and experience for. So instead of trying to push against making people change their behavior out of fear, I've always felt it's better to try and give them more options so that they can do it less often, as opposed to having to revert to, um, you know, regular behavior of eating hamburgers or steak or whatever, you know, every day of the week if the other options are just as good as better a different occasion, then people can just eat less. Um, so if they eat more vegetables, they'll eat less of something else. And for me, the, the, the kind of forced, you know, shaming tactics of various different marketing programs to get people to not do something long-term are always going to lose out against getting people to do something positive. Um, um, so, yeah, like so many times we develop products with pea protein and sunflower protein and you know, various different things that would bring us to a different echelon of both price mm-hmm. and proposition. And by the way, we're still doing it. Um, I think there's a, a whole element of alternative protein 3.0 that we're working on at the moment, um, where we, we're leaning into uh, mycelium mycoprotein Mm -hmm. as the source with other plants like um, the vegetables that we sell and we're working on a proposition currently that that presents it just like that you know you can have both you don't have to make it like meat when people just want to eat plants and vegetables Um, so um, the answer in short is absolutely yes It's, it's it's difficult when you're part of an industry not to be looking at what's going on and going, you know, have we got it it massively wrong here or have we missed a moment? Or is this a momentary um, choice where we need to stay true to our beliefs and not try and pivot into something that not even the market understands yet? And, you know, that goes for investors, partners, employees, you know, everyone's like, why aren't we doing a burger? Why aren't we doing a burger that looks like this? You know, we've got the beats, let's make it bleed. You know, it's it's difficult to stand your ground. But also, we're we've always been a brand that's kind of grown, I'd say, organic plus, which is funded in a sustainable way and not hyper funded to to stratospheric levels. And you can never have you can never win share of voice with that type of model. You have to win share of heart. So we've always focused on, you know, the few but intense fans as opposed to um, trying to buy everybody in a two-year period, which Mm -hmm. I think in the U S is, is a, is a strategy that's worked time and time again with different brands. But when you're trying to build a global brand, you know, the budget would have to be considerable to do something Mm -hmm. like that. And And the scale up at that speed, you know, is not my experience. So, you know, we're growing sustainably fast, not hyper unicorn fast, um, because that's that's what we know.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's arguably one could even say that, you know, it's too early to know the entire story, even because it's being written right now. Um, Mm -hmm. we've, We've only even in the last, I would say, six years, we've seen so many Shifts in the space where, um, and and there's it would probably take a few years to unpack what truly happened and the impact all these different uh, innovations and moves and trends have have had on not just consumer behavior and eating habits but also on potential future trends and innovation in the space. For example, one could probably argue that all the hype around meat alternatives in the last few years. Um, you know, well warranted. There was reason to be excited. There were some exciting new products out in the market that were doing things and tasting and promising uh, a sensory experience that was never delivered before with plants as the core ingredient. Yeah. yeah. One could say that that trend and the consumer interest in plant based eating also probably contributed to your growth. Um, there's no easy of way of to course. really draw that correlation, but I it is undoubtedly clear that the entire category of plants which is why we're now seeing plant-based slapped on literally every little thing any product in the grocery yeah. store now um uh, yeah. because it's got a halo of, of of goodness along with it but i'm pretty sure you kept you benefited from it as well and now in a strange way if you we- wait long enough whatever you're doing and if you're doing it well enough it becomes trendy because in the last two years i'm noticing sort of a counter trend where i'm seeing companies and again this is myopic in my view from a marketing standpoint because it is pitting yourself versus something else that already has people's attention and saying you are not that versus actually talking about what you are and i'm seeing this trend of companies talking about how they are not very processed or they do not include x number of ingredients in their products and they are made with real vegetables Uh, i I don't have an answer i don't i don't even know if i understand truly what's going on at this stage
1: (laughs) I've heard it described as the whole plant movement, which mm-hmm. is focus on real unprocessed food, as opposed to, you know, what what I and a lot of other founders in that space feel that has happened is, is that we've, while the intentions of the big brands um, that have been successful in the, in the alternative protein space have done something really unique beneficial to the environment and society, etc. What they've also done is opened up the, the, the floodgates for copycat inferior versions, relying on um, overuse of crops and land and everything that goes with it. So if you're doing it consciously, um, like all of those companies at the top of the tree are doing with those big valuations that you mentioned, that's great, but what happens is, is that you're also creating a market for, um, you know, the wrong type of food production to happen. And Mm -hmm. I think you, you can't, I suppose we can't have this conversation and not look at where the money market moves towards in this scenario as well. You know, I, I was asked to mentor, have a, have a phone call with a company that has raised over $500 million, uh, having done $2 million in sales, in one year uh, with no intellectual property. Mm. Now what that says to me is you know you know and having delved into it and understa- understanding that there's no kind of you know secret sell or, or or unique selling proposition on top of that, just kind of layering into the prompt-based opportunity that, that that exists for all of us. There's an issue in that the market has such low interest rates that uh, people and organizations and high net worths are trying to put their money into anything that has half of a chance, mm-hmm. which is also inflating this the potential success of the market, versus showing a true reality of the fact that a very very small numbers of companies are actually succeeding, and everything's been been stacked up by um, material capital as opposed to actual um, uh, increases in the sector. So. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of things similar to what you said about, you know, and absolutely, of course, the wave of plant-based consumption has helped us to no end because we were able to categorize ourselves as something, but we were also able to take part um, in in uh, countries and industries that we never would have got access to as quickly. Yeah. But then, you know, there is the unfortunate side of what's not working that doesn't get talked about, Um and uh, and I think there's a lot of that going on at the moment, while people try and find a place for themselves in in the industry.
0: But I'm I'm sure you, as well as many of these um, these uh, food tech startups, for lack of a better term, let's call them that, you're mm-hmm. both banking on a growing market for for whatever products you're selling, right? So I think that's the interesting part here is. Because often today, and, and when you read the press and some of the mostly negative press coming out lately about, you know, many of the meat alternative companies, I see speculation about whether, the, whether there isn't really that big a market for these products. And maybe they're specifically talking about those products. And I think we, there's no easy way to know this for sure at this stage. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure you're, you're seeing the trends. I mean, let's talk about your expansion into the U.S. Obviously, the U.S. is a huge yep. market. You want to be a global company. You want to be able to play here. Yeah. But I'm sure there was a lot more to it than that. You definitely see there's a trend towards people uh, who are not vegan or vegetarian that are choosing to consume less meat, choosing to eat more healthy. And my guess is, and this is a speculation based on your products and everything I've heard, is that's the market mm-hmm. you're going after. You're going after the... And and in some cases, even the meat alternative or food tech companies are also going after that same market with a very different kind of product and a very different message or
1: brand around it. Kind of. So actually, where a brand like Strong Roots thrives is in the incremental category growth that can come from within. So remember, frozen is an anomaly in the store in that you can't add more frozen space. So the frozen space that's there now is likely the same frozen space that was there five or ten years ago. It's a fixed shelf that needs refrigeration to operate. And I can tell you now that unless it's a new store opening, of which there have been very little in the last five years, um, that space has just been rotated, not increased. Mm -hmm. So for us, the the secret to Strong Roots is we, we, we figure out by date that if we were to swap out versus X, Y, or Z brand or private label products, that we would deliver incremental value to the category. So actually, instead of, I mean, of course, we want a market that's seeing incremental plant-based growth and frozen growth at the same time. But actually, our sweet spot is where we feel that we can improve a, uh, a stale market or a stale retailer for something that they need to, to solve. And a lot of the times we approach product development with that type of uh, innovation and, and, and R&D um, goals, which is with all of these jigsaw pieces in the place, how can we remove one and improve both the, the velocity and the, and the value at the same time? So ours is less, um, not absent of, of needing category growth, that'd be a silly thing to say, but we're focused on how to improve the consumption habits of the consumers that are coming to the section mm-hmm. and also bring more people to the category where they're normally going to fresh produce or chilled or snacking or another part of the store so because of the emergence as frozen as a positive a more positive place to be in the last number of years there's so much runway to get those people back to Frozen in, in in its entirety. So even, you know, in a lot of categories and a lot of retailers, we can clearly see that um, the sections and categories are down. And that's actually where we thrive. I've had a number of conversations with retailers in the U.S. in the last few weeks where I've been illustrating to them that in their specific category, they have... Um, Inflation in their sections at the moment because of um, volume or value uplifts because of cost price increases, but their units are down, whereas our products in all markets specifically or particularly in the US uh, for this conversation are both up in value and volume. And for me, that's an illustration of regardless of CPIs or whatever, we're still in growth and that's where we do well. It's identifying not just the gap from an innovation perspective, mm-hmm. but the gap in range, the gap in opportunity for you know cash in the in the till you know um, which is ultimately the the job of the retailer
0: i mean i I think you've just revealed a big um key. I was going to ask this question, but you've given me one of the keys of of uh, your growth, which is you truly understand the retail space, which one would assume is um is a given for anyone who's in this industry starting a company and running it. But you'd be surprised as the, the number of uh, startup founders I've actually talked to in the last few years who are so hyper-focused on innovation, they don't think about what happens once they have a product (laughs) and they maybe leave it up to someone else to figure it out at that point in time. And that's just frankly shocking. I,
1: I mentor a lot of early stage founders and that is the first thing that I asked them, you know, yeah. did you ask a retailer whether they want this product or not? Because <laughs> the consumer might want it, but the retailer might be the wrong delivery method for it because it competes with them on something else. And, mm-hmm. you know, back to that anecdote that I gave you about Green Giant and how it didn't work. That's the moment I realized that if you're going to lean into the bricks and mortar channel, You have to understand everything that they're going through at the same time as you're trying to sell them something because I think their biggest gripe would be, um, they don't know what what our business is. They just want to selfishly put our product on the shelf and they don't understand what the repercussions of that are. So, you know, I've never had a buyer meeting where I didn't have most of the conversation about the fact that I was trying to solve a problem for them, which ultimately would help them with the consumer. And if you understand that, you'll get there so much faster for sure. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, you have to, as as annoying as it is, because it is frustrating sometimes. Because you might think you've got the next best thing since sliced bread, but now you've got to talk to a buyer in a category who doesn't understand you or your product. But but you know, if you want to change the system, yeah, you can go D to C. You can probably do that. Maybe maybe there's hope there. But if you truly want to have the level of impact many companies in the space want to, you have to understand the system and the sort of the the ways to navigate through it. Um, and the only way to do that is to create win-win scenarios, Give the buyer what you think they want and what that store needs, um, and find a middle ground that works for both. Um, I do want to talk about how your experience in the u s has been so far. Uh, obviously, um i'm guessing it was a giant leap to to decide to um bet on the US market or maybe not maybe you have been preparing for this since the start of strong roots tell me how that's gone so far i know also you, to throw a wrench in the middle of all of this i think you timed your expansion to the US around when the pandemic hit or right after or before um so yeah any what have you learned in the last couple of years since you've or 3 years now since you've been on this journey in the US
1: um I'm delighted I'm here because um seeing and living is believing how different the u s market is to any other market that um we we play in um it's fifty countries, not one country, <laughs> in complexity and scale and um complexity um in that there's you know, as many demographics and buying behaviors and store groups and nuances to purchasing in all of those different states. And it also is a um, a continent, not a country, where the realization comes after you start about um how much funding it requires how much cash you need to burn it is the you know one of the greatest economies in the world but there is a lot of middlemen and women that need to be paid to get there and it's a system that works when you play the game and I think like a lot of European companies you come thinking that you can improve the system and actually once you realize that that's not your job and you need to conform in a certain sense you can be innovative but you still need to conform in general um, you get there much quicker so it's been it's been a it's been an eye-opening experience and I think as an entrepreneur I'm so much the better for it having been here because I think a lot of you know, initially when I came over here, there was a lot of focus on the fact that our HQ is in Ireland. I'm here, this disjointedness from the the, the management and operating team. You know, there's a bit of, um, I suppose, loss of communication. The fact that I'm not there 100% of the time, but also it's on a different time zone. So, mm-hmm. you know, speaking from a, a European transplanted brand, I'd say, you know, you know, key leadership need to be here to to understand how to do it. And then, you know, it's about understanding how things happen at scale. So, you know, you can't just hire a field marketing team to go to every store across a weekend. You know, it it might take a year for that to to materialize depending on what your distribution is. Um, Um, But when you get products that work, um, you know, considering we launched a range of six items and we've got two key SKUs that do 90% of the business, um, you have to be realistic about how you support those SKUs versus range. You have to understand what channels they're suitable for um, and also understand that it's always a multi-channel approach here. Mm-hmm. Of course, it depends on what you're trying to achieve. If you're, you know, if you're comfortable with organic growth. And you want to stay in a local market and become super famous for a super high-end product that you do from a very particular part of the country servicing a very particular part of the country you know you can make a lot of profit that way if you want to be a national brand or an international brand which were were our objectives you know it takes time it takes capital a lot of patience um (laughs) failing fast and recovering very very quickly because the ecosystem for entrepreneurship here in startup brands is like no other. You know, Mm -hmm. if you have a good idea on a Monday, you've got five competitors on a Friday. And that is the difference between, you know, the U S market and a lot of other markets, because not only is there, uh, it's the, it's the continent of great ideas, but it's also the continent of venture capital where things can move fast. So um, if you know the most and, you've figured out to have a USP over everyone else for you know an extended amount of time with supply chain, with IP, whatever, you know, you can, you can last the distance, but it's certainly not for the faint hearted, the US market or the food industry, but the US market in particular. <laughs> um, so it's been a, it's been a training ground of sorts, which mm-hmm. we're starting to make progress in, but tough nonetheless.
0: Yeah. I'm, before I want to, let's talk actually. Let's talk about McCain. I know you've, um, you met, you alluded to the partnership with McCain. I know you got some investment from them. They're a yeah. minority shareholder in Strong Roots. St- strategically, um, how does that impact your next steps besides obviously the capital infusion? Obviously, this mm-hmm. is a very strategic partnership here. How did that yeah. fit into your, your bigger goals? Um, and what has come yeah. off it so far? Yeah.
1: Yeah, it was it was way more than capital. You know, we we saw in them and they in us what each other didn't have, which was you know for them a premium plant based proposition that they could help globalise, and for us it was a robust global supply chain of manufacturing and movement of goods, um, and building one or the other from scratch is very difficult in a market like this, um, or or globally, you know, near impossible in a, in a relatively short space of time without other customers and clients, etc. cetera. So, um, you know, it's kind of easy to say we were the perfect match at the perfect time, you know, they, they are on a sustainability journey, which we wanted to plug into, and we are on a globalization journey, which we wanted to plug into them. Mm-hmm. So if you think about, you know, the types of products that they have versus the products that they'd like to um, partner with us on for distribution and food service and retail, et cetera, in the future, you know, they saw the benefit of being a partner without necessarily, you know, owning the partnership. And it was important for us that it was a minority partnership in that we have a very particular path and goal set and way of doing things that we wanted to execute. And they understand that right from the beginning, you know, from the first conversation, um, I had illustrated to them that we wanted to try and achieve uh, the type of relationship that Unilever and Ben and Jerry's had, which was do things their way with using all the best tools in the box whenever they wanted. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And, you know, It was the shortest conversation. It was just kind of like, yeah, we're kind of on the same page here. Um, So, yeah, it's much more than money. You know, markets at that time weren't as wound down as they are now, um, but there were options. Um, I think having had a private equity partner previously, we understood that we needed someone who knew the industry, who knew the, the difficulties that you know, a downward turn in the market would take, who understood yeah. inflation and ingredients and supply and all of those things. So, um, yeah, having a having a partner in the know has been really, really important, especially this year and what we're looking into. Um, you know, while we're still growing, we want to grow much faster. So having a partner that can actually help us mobilize that was key. So... Um, yeah, it's been you know it's a it's just less than a year now, nearly a year. Um, next week, and um, it's been a, a really, really good, positive, fast-moving uh, experience so far. And everything that was prescribed, so no buyer's remorse for them, or or investor remorse for me. Uh, it's all good. Been good, very good
0: timing awesome. too with uh, with that deal. I'm sure. Um, yeah, we're very or maybe lucky. you knew, or maybe you had a sense <laughs> yeah. of where things were headed.
1: No, didn't know that trend for sure.
0: <laughs> a lot of our my listeners are majority of them are based in the US. Um, several may have um already tried some of your products. I'd love to talk a little bit about your current available SKUs in the US and uh where consumers can find it. Um yep. and what, what what new things might be coming in the pipeline soon.
1: Yes, great. I love talking about our food. Uh, this is the, the best subject. So we our most widely available SKUs are our famous cauliflower hash browns and our mixed root vegetable fries that I spoke about earlier. Um, cauliflower hash browns are a super simple five-ingredient product. Um, some cauliflower as potato, potato starch, um, salt and pepper to taste and have kind of captured... The taste buds of uh, a lot of uh, Americans at this stage. I think we've got, you know, household penetration of you know just over one percent with that product, which for a relatively young brand is is pretty good going in in a, in a short space of time. But um, it's a you know what we set out to do with that product was um, take a McDonald's hash brown and make it healthy and tasty, <laughs> um, <laughs> as much as as much as could be. I know it seems like a very casual brief, but that is literally what we sat down at the table to do. Um, And uh, the consumer has has proved us right. Um, um, You can get that product in most major retailers now. So Walmart, Whole Foods, Kroger, um, ShopRite, you know, most of the places on the East Coast, Wegmans, Sprouts, Fresh Market, um, you know, a a whole range of, of places, both big and small either through you in a fire or, or direct into the big guys, uh, same with her mixed veggie fries. And they're just, you know, a delicious crisp, naturally sweet from the sugars of the root vegetables, crisp alternative to, to French fries that we see a lot of the time as a, you know, a, a home chef's balancing act on the top of something else, making it look colorful and visibly delicious, you know? Um, both super simple products like minimal ingredients, low in everything that you want, high in everything that you want and free from, you know, all the bad stuff. And, um, you know, those two products have been our, our marquee skews in the U S we used to um, sell the range of spinach bites, which I, I mentioned earlier on is um, a really interesting product. It's a snacking product that sits currently a meat alternative, but moving into the kind of entree section of appetizers and snacking. It's, Creamy spinach inside uh, upcycled dehydrated vegetable flakes. So instead mm-hmm. of breading like wheat or whatever, we've made beets and carrots into crumbs, which um, give a really interesting crunchy taste and texture to the to the creamy spinach. So if you want an alternative to a, a cheese stick or or a mozzarella stick or something like that, it's a really healthy, you know, high fiber, high iron. Uh, product, um, which tastes delicious. Um, We've just launched sea potato fries into the US and we're hoping that can become the number one branded SKU too. Mm -hmm. Um, You can find those in uh, uh, Fresh Market and Sprouts um, and ShopRite coming soon as well. And then uh, we've just launched an entrees platform that we're calling Meals for One which is the first ever completely clean, high protein, natural plant-based ready meal for the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, and every time we go into a retailer and talk about it, they're like, yeah, but how does it differ to everything else that we've got on the shelf? And we're like, oh, it's, it, it's completely healthy. And they're like, yeah, but all those things are healthy. And I was like, yeah, read the ingredients. Mm-hmm. Um, so we spent a lot of time in the entree, meal aisle, looking at why this was such a massive part of Frozen in the US and trying to understand why no one had done, you know, clean, healthy versions of what's Mm. there. And instead of using non-natural proteins like legumes and pulses, why we couldn't leverage that. So our first two SKUs go live in Whole Foods in January, which are our uh, Thai green veg curry, and our um greek orzo pasta bake um super low calorie super high in protein fiber low salt you know all the things that you want there but actually no uh unnatural ingredients um
0: and this is nationwide um, in whole foods
1: yes uh nationwide in whole foods from uh january and um coming to a few other chains after that mm. from March forward. If you can't wait for that, you can go to shop.strongreads.com and order them through our first ever DTC channel offering uh, where those two SKUs make up a subscription box. Um, so um, yeah, we're super excited about those and and also launching into into the digital platform as well, so um is that a first for you
0: have you done that before in europe or this is the first time
1: first for us it's in beta right now so um let's say that this is an exclusive to your podcast and (laughs) your listeners can actually um trial it uh for very low cost at the moment i'm not sure if it's free or nearly free but we'd love some feedback so if you put that out there and we'll leave it on until we have to stop (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, yeah, we love doing bench testing with the products. The DTC channel has been good for that.
0: That's exciting. That's really exciting. And uh, you don't do any food service SKUs at the moment, do you?
1: Um, We have one customer in Ireland from the very beginning, (laughs) a five-star hotel who still sells her sweet potato fries, believe it or not, as an appetizer. But, no, other than that, um, we're actually launching... um, our uh, a range of our products through mccain's at home network in september in the uk and hopefully we'll follow into the us um, the year afterwards so we're currently developing a full food service offering um for qsr and um uh, food service chains so watch this space it's it's uh it's coming soon
0: Wow, that's quite a journey you've been on, and i um, very interested to see how some of your new SKUs in the U.S. Uh, start to perform. I mean, that's an exciting category to be getting into, given, yes, there's not many healthy options. Then if there are some that call themselves healthy, they don't probably, they don't taste great. So what's the point? <laughs> and that,
1: that, that's what every retail buyer has told us until they've tried them. So that's <laughs> that's a that's a great call out.
0: Great. Yeah. Um, Well, you know, you've been at this now for for pretty much most of your life. I mean, if you include the time uh, that you spent with your family, getting started with your family business, which you probably learned all the nuts and bolts of everything that went into eventually creating Strong Roots. Um, I know in looking back at some of your early reasons, and you, you talked about it a bit today also, you... We're very keen on building a brand um, and that's been a big focus for you taking everything that's great about vegetables and the business that you had learned growing up but then applying that to create innovative new products without losing the integrity of the whole vegetables and you know it's it's almost like you've you've stumbled into or maybe this is all planned and you saw it 10 years ago and you knew, knew the world was heading in this direction there's so many reasons why that's the direction we need to be taking our food system. It has to be more plant-forward. Um, it has to be more nutrient-dense. It also has to be more sustainable. So just plant forward without the sustainability piece. If you're just uh, relying on, you know, if you're not diversifying your crops, you're not really truly doing great from a sustainability standpoint, although you're much better compared to anything that's animal-based. Um, all that to say, you're definitely on trend and of course if the products are great and people love how they taste uh there's nothing but good things ahead for strong roots as a company where do you see all this going i know your company has a big uh focus on sustainability as much as it does on its core ingredients and the brand um we didn't really talk about the impact on the environment much today and and maybe it's a good place to close out our conversation um And I usually give the year 2050 because, you know, for most estimates, if by then we haven't course corrected and done things now that hopefully are going to change the trajectory we're headed in, by the year 2050, we're most likely going to be in a terrible place on multiple fronts, whether it is impact on land, food shortages, the impact on on climate. But we still have a fighting chance, at least um, most of us who focus on food and the future of food. Believe that that we have a fighting chance, and the decisions and the actions we take today, both as people in the food industry as well as as consumers, can play a big difference in where this future is. So let's just talk about the best case scenario. What's your vision of what the food system will look like in 2050 if we get it right? Um, you know, and, we're, and that I used to give this timeline back in 2017. It's already 2022. The the years are closing in now. Um, yeah. But yeah, what do you think in 2050, what will the food system look like? What will our diets predominantly um, consist of? There's no right or wrong answers. It's whatever you can dream of.
1: Well, I think importantly, I feel that um, newer food companies have a role to play in the leadership of what 2050 could look like. And, you know, our role in Strong Roots is to illustrate a best case scenario for the rest of the food system. So I know today that our consumption of carbon is, our production of carbon is uh, 908 tonnes per annum. And therefore, you know, through insetting and further reduction within the next few months, we can claim carbon uh, neutrality if we want it. Um, We're conscious of a lot of the negative effects of greenwashing so you know our effort has to be in constant improvement regardless of the fact that we can claim these accolades which a lot of people think is the end goal not the start of how we start improving things because remember we have to limit the rising temperature and counteract the effects of others who will never be able to get there by doing other things by like sequestering carbon by further planting of um, crops in the right way or um, the various other different efforts that are being made. So, for us, it's about illustrating what the best case scenario could be and showing a leadership role to bigger companies in order to do better. And the reality is, is that they have the power, the profit and the ability to do those things today. They're choosing not to. So. Um, the illustration should be by example. And um, I think the best case scenario is we still have a lot of problems that have to be solved, but it eliminates the potential eradication of our species on on the planet because of the rising temperatures over um, a long period of time. So uh, for me with children, it's worth the effort even if the book is already written and therefore it's easy in a company like strong roots to share that example and do better for the sake of it um and that's what uh that's what we share as a group of people that are trying to do this together and a community of b corps and a community of plant-based foods uh, around the world like um, I think we're in good company on this podcast and with our peers, but ultimately we're the minority, not the majority. So, you know, um, making sure that we create a non-judgmental education platform for people to understand slight improvements daily, you know, be it reducetarian or flexitarian or whatever it might be. Um, I think um, it's about a united efforted approach Leading by example, as opposed to kind of forcing it down people's necks, mm-hmm. and also um, educating, you know, further generations to do so. Which fortunately seems to be the case in terms of the the, the consciousness they have for for the problems. So, what it looks like, I don't know, but I'm going to keep the head down and try and make it the best outcome possible.
0: Yeah, one one buyer at each at one retailer at a time. Right, start there. So.
1: Yeah, either consciously or or subconsciously, you know, if we can, if we can, if we can get them to make the right choices without having to think about it, isn't that better than, uh, than anything?
0: Of course. Well, Sam Danigan, this has been uh, an absolute pleasure. Congratulations on all your growth. uh, And uh, excited to see what happens next. I mean, it seems like you're, you're, you know, you've been around for a few years, but there's so much more to do in this space. Uh, It's very early innings right now. So... I appreciate you coming on today and I uh, look forward to following your journey in the months and years ahead.
1: Likewise. Great to chat. Thanks for having me on.
0: You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nil Zacharias. If you enjoy this conversation and would like to show your support, all you have to do is subscribe to the show and rate and review it. To learn more about this podcast or my work, go to eftp.co. That's eftp.co. Thank you for listening.